you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Ladies and gentlemen, entering the ring now, your host, Chris Voss. Whatever, man. Uh, we improv something different every time. Welcome to the Chris Moss Show, everyone. Those who haven't met me yet after 13 years, I'm your host. At least that's what it says here on the card. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Voss. And this is the Chris Voss Show podcast. So welcome. We certainly appreciate you guys coming by. Thanks to everyone who's uh, helping the show. Just do awesome. We're uh, on the cusp of hitting our 13th year uh, at the end of this month. I believe it's either the end of September or the end of uh august or the beginning of september and uh we're just killing it like it's uh, it's up 30 percent just this month alone let alone the doubling and tripling we seem to do every year um it's just amazing to me uh every day so we certainly thank you guys for referring the show to your family and friends go to youtube.com fortress chris foss goodreads.com fortress chris foss all of our groups on facebook linkedin twitter the big linkedin newsletter and the big linkedin group over there as well today we have two Amazing authors. It's a two-for-one special value that we're running today. Normally, you have one author per show um, because, you know, the authors know a lot. But we have two-for-one, so you're getting double the value on this show. So if you don't want to listen to the show till the end, you won't get double the value. Uh, they are the authors of the book Collision Course, Carlos Goshen, I think if I got that right, and the culture wars that upended an auto empire. June twenty second, twenty twenty one. This came out. We have Hans Grimel on the show and William Sposato on the show. They're going to be talking to us today about their amazing book, What's Inside. Uh, Hans is a award winning. American business journalist based in Tokyo, where he serves as an Asian editor for Automotive News, overseeing coverage from Japan. China and South Korea. He's been writing about Nissan and the Alliance for more than a decade and has interviewed Carlos uh, multiple times, the uh, gentleman he wrote about, including a one-time interview after Goshen's arrest. Clearly, uh, that must have been the Oscar timer telling me that my uh, time on stage was up. I'd like to thank my wife and my God. Never mind. I'm just kidding. Uh, William is a Tokyo-based correspondent and consultant who has been active in Japan for more than 20 years with senior roles at Reuters and the Wall Street Journal. He is currently a writer and regular contributor to Foreign Policy Magazine. He is also a consultant to corporations and government bodies on economics, corporate issues, and regional diplomacy. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. How are you? Very good, Chris. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks very much. Looks like it'll be a fun time. Look forward to it. There you go. I mean, the clock is already struck. So there you go. Somebody's got a grandfather clock or something there. Uh, did I get this last thing right, Goshen? Yeah. Actually, he pronounces, he pronounces it a gone, like a long gone, sound, that's like right. rhymes with bone or phone. Uh. Uh, so uh, that's how he's known. But uh, yeah. I think in certain corners of the Middle East, it is pronounced the way you, you're suggesting. But in the automotive world, it's a long O sound, gone. So we'll stand with the correction on that. Collision course, Carlos Gone and the culture wars that upended an auto empire. That'll work for my edit. 
Thanks for coming to the show. Give us your .com so people can find you guys on the interwebs. <laughs> well, well, I'm on Twitter at, at Hans Grimal, and um, uh, you can check out our book on Amazon. It's uh, there under uh, Collision Course. It's the easiest way to find it. There you go. William? Yeah, yeah, that's the best way. Uh, Amazon, um, I do have a site, uh, Spazato Media Training, but mainly uh, we're looking at, uh, at the main sites for the book and LinkedIn, of course. I, I use quite a bit. And LinkedIn was actually uh, part of the saga in, uh, in how the book came about. Oh, really? That's an interesting story. I love to hear it. We have a big 120,000 uh, group LinkedIn uh, group over there and a big newsletter that does well. We like LinkedIn. It's pretty good. So uh, have you guys written a book together before? What brought you guys together for this book? It's <laughs> a good question. I'll let uh, William take this over because he's the real linchpin here. He's the genesis of that whole uh, book Kick no, off. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, no, we've never written a book together. Uh, and actually, uh, we've known each other for quite a few years here in Japan. Uh, Hans was, used to be with the Associated Press, and now uh, I knew him when he was uh, when he joined Automotive News. And yeah, uh, an agent got in contact with me actually, and the the, the Gon Saga was all in the news, and said, uh, "Can you write a book on this?" And I said, no, I can't write a book on this. I don't know enough about it, but I do know someone who does. So I got in contact with Hans and uh, we talked it over and looked at what each of us thought we could do in terms of a book and contribute in. And the two dovetailed perfectly. Uh, so basically so, you knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. Yeah, absolutely. So the, uh, the, the book is very much like uh, what we first mapped out uh, in terms of the content. And because the story does tell itself. It's just a great saga, and there's so much more to it as well. So that's really how the book got started. There you go. It's astounding story, man. I mean, it's like when you when you you know the first time it blew onto my radar was uh, you know when he he gets escaped or uh, you know taken or expatriated uh, in a box on a plane. You know, and it just hit the news mm -hmm. everywhere, and then you just started hearing about it. And you're just like, this sounds like a movie script. Like, who wrote this? It's crazy. Yeah. So I think, uh, that's, I think that's what put him on the radar screen for a lot of people worldwide was that daring escape that he had in a box from Japan. Uh, yeah. But, you know, even before that, the story itself was just wild. It was a classic rise and fall of a all-star uh, international executive suddenly picked up at the airport one day out of the blue and accused of all kinds of financial misconduct going back for a decade. So even before the escape, the, the story was wild and unbelievable. Yeah, and it, I think at one point he was either almost a billionaire or a billionaire. I don't, I don't know about his total net assets, but I think in terms of salary, he wasn't quite at a billionaire level. But he was uh, probably had aspirations to get as close as he could. I think if I recall that he was negotiating a deal to get paid an enormous sum that would that would have put him close to that. Uh, so give us an overview of the book, uh, the picture that you guys paint in the book of, of this gentleman. Well, I mean, we start off just telling the story of his rise and fall. I mean, he he was quite a one of the most famous automotive executives in the world um, and still is. Um, he was a transformational uh, character in the 19, uh, late 1990s and early 2000s. He was a pioneer in things like uh, consolidation of the industry, the, the drive for massive scale. He was a pioneer of electric vehicles. He was also a pioneer of 
uh, autonomous vehicles. He was the first uh, CEO to run two Fortune 500 companies at the same time. And he parachuted into Nissan at, at the tender age of 45 years old and basically saved a national icon from the scrap heap. So um, by the time right on the eve of his arrest, he had basically cobbled together what became the world's um, largest automotive group or consortium. It had Mitsubishi, Nissan, and Renault together, and they were send it, selling in excess of 10 million vehicles a year to make it the biggest automotive group on the planet. It's just crazy. I mean, he he's he's doing what just about any Fortune 500 you know CEO would do in America. And uh, where does he go? Where does he go wrong? He's I think he he lives a, a kind of a, a a vaulted life for like uh, 10, 20 years or something. Yeah, you're yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the arrest came out of the blue, and 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 at the time he was thinking about how to. Um, knit the, these, this alliance a little bit closer together because it was a, a concern about um, legacy, what would happen after he leaves the scene. He was already uh, 64 at the time of his arrest, and, you know, he, retirement was right around the corner. So uh, even a, uh, a workhorse like Carlos Ghosn can't stay <laughs> working forever. And the concern was how can they keep these companies together in, a, in what was then a loose alliance uh, to keep working after he's gone because mm-hmm. he had always positioned himself as the essential uh, the essential element, basically, the, the one missing link that kind of held the whole company together. And without him, the concern was, well, maybe they'll go flying apart and this whole auto, auto automotive empire will just crumble. Mm-hmm. So that was where we, we were at the time when uh, he, of his arrest. Now, you guys write in the book about how he was, uh, Carlos is, had a un-Japanese management style and uh, that it was tolerated. Why, why was that? I, I know that Japanese, I think, used to have a kind of real rigid kind of a military sort of uh, employment style, didn't they? Well, the word used to is probably not quite accurate. A lot of do. Japanese companies are still very hierarchical. Wow. wow. Uh, the boss tells you what to do. Now, Gon was amazing. Uh, when he came to Japan in 1999, uh, you know, anyone driving a Nissan today, you probably, uh, it wouldn't be there if it weren't for Carlos Gon because wow. the company was probably going to go under mm-hmm. at that point. They were in serious, serious financial trouble. And this was a huge shock to Japan, which had been used to in the 1980s to really rising up right, mm-hmm. and becoming uh, you know, the, the world's provider of electronics, goods, automobiles, et cetera. And here was their number two automaker now in huge trouble. And Gohan was actually quite smart. He had never worked in Asia before. And he came in, as you say, to this very hierarchical Japanese corporate structure. And he seemed to have an instinct on what rules he needed to keep to and which rules he could break. Ah. And so he brought his own style to this, and it obviously succeeded hugely. Yeah. So as Han said, it's a 19-year saga. For the first 17 and a half years, it was all going brilliantly. Wow. And and, I, and, and so he's, he's basically, uh, you know, he kind of knows where to bend the rules and get things done. He had $6 billion, $60 billion in value to Nissan, which is... Yeah. That's quite extraordinary, actually. And there's some Japanese who say, well, you know, no matter what he did, we have to remember that he had, you know, gave, you know, created all of this wealth. So for any CEO to be able to turn around and say, look, 
look at the wealth I created. And that is one of the points that Ghosn makes in his defense. Do you think that he would have been prosecuted if he'd been an American CEO? Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, and one of the, the topics that we address in our book, Collision Course, uh, is the the kind of relevance or the the, the uh, relativity of the, the laws in the Japan versus the United States versus other jurisdictions and how uh, similar actions can come under different scrutiny in different uh, places. Mm-hmm. You know, in the United States, uh, if we look at one of the um, the uh, accusations against Gone, which was the deferred compensation accusation, in the United States, that was handled as a civil matter uh, or at the by the uh, F uh, F S A is it no that's S E C and he was simply handed a fine for that um but in the united in japan on the other hand it was a criminal matter uh with a prison sentence a possible prison sentence attached to it of up to 15 years um so uh the the severity of the the action or the accusation uh it varies across different jurisdictions so it's it's doubtful whether a blue a white collar executive like gone would have been found uh, taken to court or dragged before a criminal uh, case uh, with the penalty of uh, uh, prison time held over his head in a place like the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he he should probably just run for president in America because that seems to work for some of the people here that uh, get away with everything. Uh- <laughs> yeah, the legal differences are quite something. And there is some view internationally that the U.S. is too light on white-collar uh-huh. criminals. But on the other hand, uh, does Japan really understand the complexities of doing business? Yeah. So in there was a trial of his lieutenant, Greg Kelly. And in the trial, the prosecutors made a big deal over lawyers' statements from uh, Fort on Kelly's side that they were looking for loopholes on various issues. Wow. And for the Japanese prosecutors, the word loophole was enough to suggest sort of nefarious wow. doings. Wow. So there, there was a real clash. I mean, that's why we call it collision course. There was a real clash of corporate sensibilities here over what's mm-hmm. done in Japan versus what's done in the U.S. In the same time, you know, there are Japanese executives who can't go back to the U.S. because they're charged with crimes there mm-hmm. uh, for things that probably would not be criminal actions here in Japan. So it yeah. cuts both ways. Yeah. And I probably should I probably should do a summation for people, those who are not aware. Uh, do you do one of you want to uh, do the summation of, of what happened with him getting expatriated that hit the news and, and uh, where he's at now and and, uh, and that or should, do you want me to do it? Sure, sure. I can I can bring the, the listeners up to speed on that. Um, well, we we had him up in 2018 where he was at the top of his game at the top of the industry, um, a legend, a walking and living legend. And uh, he was here for a regular business meeting and he was picked up at the airport upon landing and taken directly to the biggest uh, prison uh, jail detention center here in Tokyo. And he spent 130 days in, in confinement over uh, a period of, of months. Um, and uh, eventually he was released on bail and he was preparing to fight what was by all accounts would be like the biggest uh, business trial of in, you know, in Japan's history, uh, putting a foreign, a CEO of a of a of a Japanese iconic company on trial for criminal, possibly putting him in in prison after having saved the company. 
And uh, it looked like he was going to prepare to face trial and prove his innocence in, the, in court. And uh, suddenly, uh, over a New Year's weekend in 2000, from 2019 to 2020, uh, he announces that, by the way, I've, I've slipped out of Japan and I'm now safe and sound in Lebanon. And because he has Lebanese citizenship, they, can't, they won't extradite him back to Japan. So uh, he slipped out of Japan in, in a uh, daring escape in a late night. He a, went on with, a, with the help of literally a former uh, U.S. Green Berets. He uh, arranged a, an escape plan where he dashed halfway across the country on the bullet train and packed himself into a crate at a, uh, at a packing box for like audio equipment at a hotel. They wheeled him secretly onto a private jet that was at the Osaka airport. And they flew him to Turkey where he changed, changed planes and flew to Lebanon. And, um, and uh, Japan will never forgive him for humiliating the justice system in that way. Oh, and, and he, then he thumbs his nose at them in, in Peru. Yeah. He's like, he's like, no, he's like, yeah, nah, 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 nah. And then yeah, his, his justification for it was that he had, his, his quote was, I have not fled justice. I have escaped injustice and political persecution. So he really, um, yeah, thumbed his nose at them and, and um, what was it? a massive humiliation to the Japanese system. It caught them completely off guard. And that's where he lives to this day. Uh, trying to resuscitate his reputation. Wow, that's the same language I use on my last five divorce decrees. Um, the uh, <laughs> political persecution, damn it! I don't know what that means. It's a joke, people. Um, so, and France is after him too, right? That's right. Yeah. That, wow. The more recent, and now they have their own arrest warrant out for him. Wow. So, I think at one point he harbored uh, hope that he might be able to return to France, where he also has citizenship. But uh, going back to France now uh, poses its own set of uh, risks. Wow. So what is what are the allegations against him that you guys write about in the book? And uh, did you guys get a chance to interview him? Yes, we interviewed him for the book. And, you know, I'm, I first met him, I think, in 2007. So I've been covering him over the years um, at, on my day job, which is the Asia, being the Asia editor f- here in Tokyo for Automotive News. And uh, so, you know, I've, I've watched him develop over the course of more than a decade now, uh, interviewed him multiple times over that period. And um, uh, yeah, I, I just it, it's it's um, an interesting development of the, the personality. You could say at the end of his career or at the end of these years, he was kind of becoming more distracted. He wasn't uh, as focused on the day to day operations of the company's as he uh, used to be, or, uh, you know, with the reputation of being a hands-on active manager. Uh, he was seen as by some as a kind of the emperor with no clothes. Uh, mm-hmm. and no one could tell him no. Uh, the oversight of him was lax. Uh, he kind of, no one was brave enough to challenge him because he had been in p- position of power for so long um, that, uh, that he was kind of the, the emperor, so to speak. Wow. And that's why you see a lot of the, the oversight or the corporate governance issues crop up around a Nissan in particular because he just didn't have the oversight that you would have at a lot of um, uh, internet, more international companies, especially those in the United States. Wow. 
So what did you guys find in your research on him? Was he a victim of power or was he, you know, uh, trying to cash in a little too much or where was it? Probably both. Mm. I mean, we do know that there was a conspiracy, if you want to call it that, to get rid of him. Oh, really? him out. Three, uh, at the trial that came out, the three mm-hmm. sort of mid-level senior executives had gotten together, uh-huh. had decided going was dangerous, and um, went to the prosecutors. Uh-huh. So they didn't even go to the board of directors of Nissan. They, they went, went right to the prosecutors. They went straight to the prosecutors, <laughs> wow. who originally said, well, you don't have enough here. Go find more. Serious. I did not know about this part. And so the, the prosecutors at first said, no, you don't have enough information here. So here you had this group within Nissan all looking around to try and find new charges against the boss. Wow. And they wow. finally persuaded the prosecutors. Now, Gohn will tell you it's a political setup uh-huh. that uh, basically he was being pushed out uh, by certain elements within Nissan who were working with certain elements within the Japanese government. Uh, who thought that Gon was now potentially going to merge Nissan with Renault, and therefore Japan would lose one of its most famous companies. Oh, wow. And so that was, from Gon's perspective, the motivation mm-hmm. for what happened. But um, you guys found it was really, it was really kind of an inside hit job, basically. Well, that was one part of it. But on the other uh-huh. hand, was he actually guilty of the allegations? Yeah. And, you know, guilt becomes very tricky. We, in the book, we call it the gray world of white collar crime. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that Gon uh, is alleged to have done uh, probably wouldn't have been that big an issue in other countries, such as the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they were prosecuted in Japan at, at a very high level. And there's always this question of, you know, this is the way things are done. So the, the initial charges were that Gon had sort of hidden salary that was not disclosed. It was a very technical charge that basically Gohn's real compensation was not in the annual filings that they have to make to Japanese regulators. Mm. So that was sort of charge number one. And that went into a lot of, you know, little details about, you know, letters and was he going to have a consulting gig with the company after he retired. And Mm. then other more serious charges have never really come out in full light. All we know is what's from the prosecutors, leaks, uh, various reports. And those are always, you know, to be suspect to some extent. But the case seems to be building. Hans really went into the the other two charges more fully. And mm-hmm. they're quite complex. Maybe you could explain them a little better than I can. Well, yeah, there are two other. There are a lot of charges against uh, Gohn and lots of all kinds of wrongdoing or misuse or a misconduct. Now, in Japan, only there are basically three issues that only rose to the level of the prosecutors that were taken to court or that ended in indictments. That Those are the deferred compensation, the kind of like uh, not fully reporting how much uh, he's being compensated. But there are two more breach of trust uh, allegations, which involve millions of dollars that are apparently that, – that, that were uh, allegedly – uh, misused the company monies misused by Gone for his personal use, and that's those are the serious charges that really haven't been aired in court. And that is those charges are also mirrored in the more recent charges uh, leveled in France. Apparently, they uh, seem to believe that 
Ghosn was doing the same thing at Renault as he was doing at at mm-hmm. Nissan, and that's what they're after him for in um, apparently after him for in uh, in France as well. Now, on top of that, there are all kinds of other misconduct things that didn't even r- rise to the level of uh, uh, of the prosecutor's office, and those include taking uh, big bonuses at uh, various um, subsidiaries that were under uh, his watch, uh, excessive expense account uh, handlings, um, uh, taking special, uh, basically mishandling and taking uh, inappropriate payouts from a a stock-linked award system. All these kind of things uh, are are a huge pile of accusations that didn't even rise to the level of, of prosecution, but wow. created a feeling within the, the Nissan of kind of just abuse of the system or no. abuse of power and resentment that kind of boiled up uh, under this under the surface. Um, in fact, what got the in part partly what triggered the investigation into Gone and potential misconduct was a. Um, his handling of the, his expenses for a um, uh, private and family-oriented um, airline ticket. So that is kind of what triggered uh, the 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 inside click down this rabbit hole of looking for um, ways to uh, snag going. Well, wow. it just shows don't be cheap because I mean the initial allegation or the problem was that uh, Nissan had an in-house travel agent. Uh-huh. And, you know, any of us that work at a company, you always think when you book a ticket that the company, you know, the company price is much too high and I can do better than that. So Gone was being charged for some of these family tickets. And he uh-huh. went to the guy and he said, you're, you're overcharging me. This is ridiculous. I want a refund. Uh-huh. And so the guy said, well, no, this is what we paid. You know, there's no way around it. And so his own little unit was now going to suffer a loss because of this. Wow. And so he was all upset. So he went to one of the guys who later uh, became one of the sort of co-conspirators and said, look, you know, I'm, I've got this problem, you know, and he was very upset, as you would be, you know, in Japanese, take these things very, very seriously. Uh-huh. And so that's sort of what started the ball rolling. Wow. It's always, you know, you just push a little too far. You guys write that he was uh, ultimately accused of secretly setting aside $80 million for himself and deferred competition. Uh, compensation to be paid out after he retired. I think that was also in the wording of my last nine divorces. Um, the, uh, uh, so he, I mean, was that illegal or was that, I mean, it seems like in America that would be fine, but I don't know. Everything's illegal here, but it shouldn't be, or should be, I don't know. One of those two. Well, it, it's illegal if you don't report it. <laughs> ah, and there so you the go. question was very technical. The question was, was this money that was promised to him? Or as he claims, was it just, no, I was going to get, you know, potentially an $80 Mm -hmm. million uh, consulting gig with the company because I'm so valuable. And indeed, Mm -hmm. he he was valuable to Nissan. And so that's, that's, there was, there was a trial of more than three months of one of his lieutenants uh, that dragged on and on on this very question, whether this, whether the, uh, the letters that were written and the contracts that were drawn up represented that. Uh, true compensation. Wow. Wow. Yeah, there, there was an American executive, a board member, actually, who was arrested on the same night with Gone. They were both lured to Japan together, arrested at separate airports in Tokyo. The, the American was stuck in Japan after Gone left. 
His name is Greg Kelly. And he had wow. to face trial all alone. So the prosecutors had expected to make Ghosn the main focus of the trial. But instead, they were left with these this consolation prize of just having put on his, his American lieutenant, who in the end, I might say, was found guilty on only and given a suspended sentence on only one of the eight years uh, that he was charged with misconduct for. So um, the, the judge uh, seemed to buy into uh, Kelly's defense quite, quite readily. But at the same time, in announcing the verdict, the judge was very clear that if Gone had been there himself, he would definitely have been found guilty. He blamed, he, his verdict wow. was focused as much on Gone, or even more so on Gone, than it was on Kelly, the actual defendant in the, the courtroom. That is some wild stuff. This is this has got to be a movie. I would watch it. The whole thing is just everything I ever learned about it. And the more I hear about it, the more it's just like you, you just uh, what's that old thing about Hollywood? Truth is stranger than fiction. Like there's some things you just can't write because life writes it itself. Um, so uh, you guys talk about how more than ninety seven percent of the cases that go to trial, prosecutors win. I wish we had that here. Um, but uh, actually, the U.S. numbers are not that far off. It's oh, really? It's a misconception. Yeah. It, oh. At the federal level in the U.S., it's around 90, 95 percent. Really? Most okay. people, most people cop a plea. That's uh, true. What yeah. you see on TV is not at all realistic of any judicial system. Most of it is done by plea bargain deals, uh, which don't actually exist in Japan, which is part of the reason for the difference and why, uh, why there's so much pressure for people to confess. Mm. And yeah. that was one of the things about pretrial detention, that people are locked up until they basically confess to the crime. And that's what gets the conviction rate so high. Do you feel like the Japanese uh, court system would have definitely thrown the book at him then, based on what that judge was going on about? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the court system here is uh, a lot different from <laughs> from the United States. For example, yeah. if you're in, in prison or in, de- in detention, pretrial detention, the prosecutors can come in as often as they want and interview you and, and interrogate you without your lawyer present. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. So there's th- these very fundamental uh, liberties and um, uh, rights that we have in the United States aren't aren't taken for granted, aren't even thought of here in Japan. Uh, the rules for sharing evidence are, um, you know, very different as well. Uh, Greg Kelly, the American who was stood trial after after uh, Gone left, was given boxes and boxes of documents uh, as evidence, literally just days before the trial. And even now, he's still receiving boxes of evidence from the from the prosecutors after wow. the trial is over. So these are, you know, he is basically fighting the the case with one hand behind his back because he didn't have the full set of evidence. Holy crap! So you can imagine, and that was kind of the small fish mm-hmm. uh, that the prosecutors were after. So you can imagine the kind of um, hardball they would play with the the real target, someone yeah. like God. It sounds almost like uh, uh, New York police precincts when they used to interview uh, suspects with a phone book. Um, yellow, big old yellow pages. If you don't know that joke, you can go see. What's the movie with Al Pacino? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> no, but there is in New York the the perp walk is very similar. So is it? Is you know, it? prosecutors yeah. will selectively leak things in New York. When I was reporting there, uh, they would do what's called the perp walk, where they arrest someone in a high profile case, 
and they want a picture of that suspect in handcuffs being brought out of the precinct to go to you know, oh, jail. Yeah. And so uh, they can't expect the media to wait around all day. So you can call up the PR office in the New York City police and ask them, when's the guy going to get walked? And they'll wow. tell you what, the time, and therefore all the cameras are ready. And the implication is clear. This person must be guilty. Look, he's being Clearly. carried out in handcuffs. So prosecutors are not always the most reliable people. And there have been there were actually some big cases of fraud here in Japan that really shocked the nation wow. about prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah. Serpico was the movie Al Pacino reference I was looking for there. So uh, there's that. No one knows what I'm talking about because clearly it's an old movie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they they used to. There was an old thing, I guess, in the '70s where in New York they would uh, they would uh, use the phone book to uh, get your confession out of you. Um, so so uh, that's what that joke's about. Um, so what do you guys think? Do you guys think he did it or he didn't do it? Do you think he should have went to jail or do you do you want to comment on that? I don't know. I figured I'd put you on the spot. Hans can go first. <laughs> and we're just doing this for fun, boys. So you don't have to uh, throw down if you don't want. Well, the first thing I'll have to say is that I'm not a judge. I'm not privy to the full raft of evidence that's out there. I don't know uh, the legal, the the full um, legal implications and ins and outs of all the uh, the laws that he is accused of breaking. So uh, it's I can't come up with a a conclusion here on uh-huh. his guilt factor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, on one sense, where there's smoke, there's fire. He fled and didn't decide not to stand yes. trial after saying that he could he would prove himself innocent. Mm-hmm. But there's uh, mates in in the Japan eyes of Japan uh, that just proves his his guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, he says he fled a system of injustice because he can't get a fair trial in Japan. And mm-hmm. from an American point of view, it's hard to uh, argue with that because the system here is very different. Now, Greg Kelly. Uh, skated by uh, he stayed and he he stood his ground and he defended himself as best he could and mm-hmm. he got a six-month suspended sentence and then was allowed to go back to the united states so he's back mm-hmm. home right now but he lost three years of his life basically trying to fight the allegations here in japan mm-hmm. um and, and is it now is basically financially strapped because of all the the legal rules he's appealing but... the case he's appealing the one uh, guilty verdict that he had and um, the prosecutors here, that's another difference, are also appealing the uh, non-guilty verdicts because mm-hmm. prosecutors here can keep you uh, basically strapped to the legal system by even appealing non-guilty verdicts uh, over and over again and bleeding you dry. So uh, his his life is hardly very fun now. Uh, and you can imagine that that would be what would be awaiting Gohan. Gohan said that he would basically... Uh, because of the legal system here, he would spend the rest of his life in Japan and might even die here uh, because he yeah. didn't expect to be felt, found. Yeah, so I'll put you down for plausible deniability, defense, and uh, possible non-denial denial. Uh, the uh, so uh, it, it, his 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 uh, partner or his uh, it, Mr. Kelly ends up only getting six months and and left off. Um, do you, do you think they're ever going to get, oh, is France after him? That was the question I had for you. Is France after him as well? Well, yes, France is after him, but I think Mm -hmm. from the Japanese point of view, the best thing to do is just to keep him bottled up in Lebanon. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should have clarified. Greg Kelly is France after him too, as well. No, no, no. Where where does Greg Kelly reside? He's American, right? 
Yeah, he's American. He's back in Tennessee at his home outside Nashville. There you go. And Nashville is where ten, uh, where Nissan has its North American headquarters. Do you guys get into the story of the guy who expatriated him, the the, the craziness of, of that whole uh, thing? Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, we covered the trial. Uh, they mm-hmm. were on trial here uh, last year mm-hmm. and uh, both pleaded basically guilty um, right away. And uh, they were sentenced to jail. So the father and son are still here in jail and prison in, in Japan. And uh, the father has two years. I think the, the son has a year and eight months. Wow. So they'll be out before you know it. And then uh, they'll be able to tell their side of the story and, uh, and maybe <laughs> play a role in that, that movie that you that movie. Talking. Yeah. Because it was quite extraordinary. The guy was like, he, he'd spent, I think at least a decade or two being a, he would go find people that had been taken hostage and free them, I think, or, mm-hmm. or you know, go find people that were trapped in countries and ex- and get them out. And so he just kind of thought like this would be, to my understanding, he kind of thought that this would just be like one of those things where you can just, you know, enter Afghanistan and leave and no one gives a crap. And, uh, and yeah, uh, I think he got bad legal advice of his own because he, after, <laughs> after he did all this, number one, they sort of leaked the, their involvement, right? For yeah. Purposes, They're like proud of pictures, it. Yeah. And, and then, um, he, he goes back and he lives in Massachusetts where, you know, he's obviously findable. And apparently he had been told that this wasn't actually a crime in Japan. Wow. And uh, as I say, you know, that turned out not to be quite correct. Yeah. So they were very smart at trial. They copped a plea very quickly. They expressed remorse in the Japanese fashion endlessly. Uh, The older one cried during the trial about how guilty he felt about all this. And that was, you know, the right thing to do from their point of view. They were never going to be found innocent. Right. You know, there was the videos, et cetera. And so, you know, get the sentence down to as much as possible. Uh, Japanese prisons are tough, Mm. but at the same time, they're not Rikers Island. You know, they're safe. Uh, There's no inmate to inmate violence. There's no drugs. As long as, you know, you're subservient to the guards and do what they want, um, it's not that bad in existence. So I think they figured they'll just sort of ride it out. That sounds boring. When I want fun, I go to Rikers. (laughs) But, you know, in a classic episode from the trial, um, Gone had led them to believe that, uh, you know, Gone was being tortured in Japan and that torture was uh, the the normal thing in a Japanese jail and that uh, and and. uh, the, the commando, uh, the former Green Beret, was all up in arms about this and thought he was really doing a service uh, against injustice to save Gone from this this uh, torture. And then he's, after spending time in jail himself, he was asked in trial, well, what do you think of jail's now? Oh, it's not at all like I saw. It's not, no no, no uh, torture going on at all. This is much better than I expected. I, I realized I was, I was wrong. Yeah. I, mis- I, I was mis- misled. Well, you can figure Carlos Ghosn has a different view of what represents torture. Um, you oh, know, yeah. it's a small room. You have to sit on the floor. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. You, and when you have to sit, you're, you have to sit. You can't lie down. Oh, You wow. can't do exercises in your cell. Wow. Uh, it's all very, very regimented. So mm-hmm. I can imagine for Ghosn, you know, used to having his own jet flying around, um, this was torture in some respects. Yeah. This sounds like my first seven divorces, actually. Um, just kidding. We, sometimes we come with a good callback joke and we just keep abusing it. Uh, so uh, I've actually had people write me and they go, 
how many divorces you've been through? Because the your the number always changes, and it's like that's why it's a joke. I'm, I've never been married, um, so there you go. But no, I think it would be really interesting um, uh, just to interview those guys when they come out. Um, I mean, the, the whole way that, that everybody thumbed a nose of the Japanese, like no, 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 we got away. You're just like holy crap. And I think he has to walk around with a security deal, right? Do, do you think Japan would ever go in and snatch him? <laughs> That would be wild. That would be the perfect capper. That would, yeah, that'd be the great ending. Because right? <laughs> the, the the story is still open ended. We don't really have yeah. a conclusion to how this story will end, which is somewhat dissatisfying. But you can't imagine. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put anything past it. There is <laughs> past the this story because every time uh, we get further into it, something unexpected happens. Um, so it could happen. He could end up back in France or Japan to yeah. face justice. But I can't imagine like a team of command, a Japanese commandos storming through with like a black helicopter and like hauling him off in a straitjacket or something. I just, yeah. uh, that's not the Japanese style. That I think happened they're happy just to keep him bottled up in, in, in um, Lebanon and try to forget that this ever happened. There you go. I mean, that happened in my first six marriages, the uh, black helicopter stuff. You know, yeah, if we can get a whole Bruce Willis ending there. You know, mm-hmm. where I don't know how that works out, but you know, yippee ki motherfucker, and the and the and the end comes up. You know, that sort of thing might be. I can see that being a great movie. Blow some shit up. You get uh, who's that director? Bring him in. Uh, you know, stuff blows up a few times. Uh, you got you got yourself a that's a that's a that's at least a billion dollar movie right there. Maybe I don't put Yoda in. You got some Star Wars spin on it. Yeah. Um, put Disney on the front of it. You got you're gonna you're gonna make goo, gulags of bucks there. <laughs> Well, Lebanon, oh. is not the, Lebanon is not the world's nicest place to be at the moment. That's true. That's true. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna shame Lebanon, but now that you've done it, it is kind of a prison unto itself. So, well, he um, does have a nice house there, and yeah. there was an explosion. There was that huge explosion, yeah. I believe, last summer with the with the fertilizer ship, and uh, mm-hmm. his house was damaged in that explosion. Oh, so, was it? Yeah. yeah. So, They're so like, holy crap! Off. They found me. They're coming. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, he's 68 years old now. He was uh, 64 at the time of his arrest. He's 68 this year. And, uh, you know, he's no spring chicken anymore. So I think, you know, he may just be, you know, uh, just accepting his fate and living his his life in in Lebanon as best he can with his family. Um, He's teaching some courses, right? He's teaching some courses. Um, he's doing some advisory and consultancy work, he says, for other startups and things in the auto industry and trying to mentor Middle Eastern um, uh, up-and-coming business people. So uh, he's trying to uh, rehabilitate his reputation and stay with one foot in the in the business world. There you go. You know what he reminded me of? He reminded me of Mark Rich. Remember how Mark Rich in the 80s escaped? Hmm. I was coming up as a stockbroker back then, and uh, he just escapes to uh, Swiss, and, you know, they can't extradite him. He's just like, nah, 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 I got my billions. And then eventually, I think his wife paid off Bill Clinton, and he got a pardon. But he, like, escaped them for, like, I think two decades or something. Yeah. Uh, U.S. punishment. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Well, this is a wild ride, man, and a wild read, guys. People are going to love this. Uh, anything we want to tease out more on the book before we go? Um, well, I think it's a fun story, number one, the going story. But also, we, we tried to capture a lot of Japan, a lot about uh, Hans wrote a huge amount about the auto industry and Nissan's role and the future of it. So it sort of goes beyond just the Gone saga. 
Mm-hmm. And we hope it's, it's a good book for anyone involved in international business. Um, anyone who's obviously thinking of coming to Japan, uh, there's some good elements in there for you. So that would be mm-hmm. sort of my plug for it. There you go. Uh, anything, Hans? Well, we, we tell the Gon story, which has plenty of drama in its own right, but we tell it through the lens of different angles. We tell it through the collision, the various collisions, the collisions between uh, the countries of Nissan, uh, sorry, of, of, of uh, Japan and, and France. We tell it the, the collision of uh, the companies involved, too. We talk about the collision of the different legal systems, the Western system versus the Japan system. And we also talk about the collision going on with, throughout the automotive industry with all these new um, technologies, electrification, auto, autonomous driving, and the pressures that it's putting on uh, the players and especially the CEOs who are running these companies to stay ahead of the new entrants like Tesla and, and startups from China. So it's to us, the story is, is gone because that's where the drama comes through. But there's a lot more drama and tension that's coming through these other collisions uh, that play a big role in the whole story. Yeah, it's just it's just really interesting. And I, it sounds like you guys cover a lot of Japanese culture in there and why why that was a collision. Yes, absolutely. We talk about Japanese culture, French culture, and how the two played together in terms of how they view corporations. Mm-hmm. Japan, um, you know, uh, or I'm sorry, France, you know, was nationalizing companies not too long ago. So there's yeah. a, a different view there, but also some similarities. It's different than the American system by yeah. no no doubt. It's so funny when you look at uh, Gon's behavior compared to U.S. Uh, CEOs payouts and, you know, the extraordinary payouts, you know. Oh, you laid off 40,000 people. Here's $10 billion this uh this uh, quarter for you or what year I'm being a little bit over the top, but you know what I mean? And, and different payouts, like somebody does a horrible job. The companies, you know, you look at the, like, for example, look at the, we work uh, ex CEO and he just got like, was it $350 million or $330 million from, from Anderson Horowitz. And uh, you know, and, and I think uh, soft pink is still losing like billions over that whole deal in their reporting. And you're just like, what the hell's going on? Like who, who gives this guy money and who keeps giving him money? But you know, welcome to America. This is what we well, do. That, that was part of Gone's resentment. You know, he yeah. saw those numbers around and he saw yeah. what he was making and he yeah. saw, okay, I added $60 billion and what's my salary. Yeah. yeah. In some ways he was in the wrong business. He should have gone into private equity or, or politics. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so it's been wonderful to have you guys on the show, guys. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, really insightful. People need to read your book, man. It's a it's a hell of a ride, man. And 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 it's just it's just like I mean, you couldn't write a Hollywood script this good. Uh, give me your guys' dot coms, your plugs, so people can find you on the interwebs, please. Well, I'm on LinkedIn, and you can find my writing on a daily basis at automotivenews.com, autonews.com. That is. There you go. And I'm mainly on LinkedIn. I do some work for foreign policy as well, writing about some of the political actions going on here. So you can find my material there as well. So those are the best two places. But There you go. There you go. And uh, make a note, uh, if I ever want to just make lots of money, I'm going into politics. Anyways, (laughs) thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Remember, go to wherever fine bookstores are sold, but stay at those alleyway bookstores. I got tetanus. uh, I had to take a tetanus shot the other day when I got one. Uh, Order it up today. Uh, Collision Course, Carlos 
Carlos Ghosn and the Culture Wars that upended an auto empire. You want to check it out. And like, like I say, I mean, few stories are as crazy as, as what this guy goes through. And, and who knows? You may have a second book. There may be that whole Bruce Willis thing that comes into play with black helicopters and uh, all that sort of good stuff. What was the old thing we used to do? And we used to take people to Poland in black helicopters or secret prisons that we used to run. I think that was under the uh, Cheney com- uh, presidency. Anyways... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Be sure for the show, your family, friends, and relatives. Remember, the Chris Foss Show is the family that loves you but doesn't judge you. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time.